Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We are returning again today on the Beacon Broadcast into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity as he prays to his heavenly Father shortly before his crucifixion and ascension back to heaven. We enter this place of of, uh, special revelation in the presence of the praying Savior with quietness and reverence. This is an amazing passage of Scripture revealing to us the very words of Jesus as he prayed to the Father. You may recall that in the first part of his prayer, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for the Father to glorify the Son in order that the Son, in turn, may bring glory to the Father. But after this, he turns his attention toward his people First, with a focus upon his disciples, but beyond that, to all of those who will, over the centuries of time, believe in his name. His prayers filled with petitions on behalf of his blood-bought children. But this section, praying for his disciples, praying for his followers, begins with verse 6, where we find a rather instructive description of who is a Christian, that is, who is a born-again believer, that is, who is a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, as described by Christ himself. And that's the portion that we're working our way through. We will return to it on the broadcast today. Thank you for joining us on this Saturday or Sunday, February 24 or 25, and thank you for the financial help that some of you give us so that we can continue teaching on this station. All right, what is a Christian? Let me read verse 6 again. Jesus says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What is a Christian as described by Jesus? It is, first of all, one who belonged initially to the Father. That, of course, takes us into that mysterious doctrine of election, which we have covered rather thoroughly and will not return to at this point, but it's just a reminder that this is one of many, many sections in the Bible that teach this doctrine. 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. So, who who is a Christian? He is one, he or she is one who first belonged to the Father. But secondly, a Christian is one who has been given by the Father to the Son. Those whom you gave me out of the world. Given as a possession, these now become the Son's children. You gave them to me. Given as a charge, a responsibility for the Son takes upon himself the responsibility to redeem them and to preserve them. That's his work. That's the mission that he came to do, to become a substitutionary sacrifice for those who will trust in him. And thirdly, a Christian is one to whom the Father's name has been manifested by the Son. And this is the one we were talking about on the broadcast last week where Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And we talked a bit last week about what is meant by the Father's name. Is this a literal name? If so, what name? Jehovah? They already knew that name. He didn't reveal that name to them as something new. The great I Am, they already knew that name. That's really what what Jehovah or Yahweh means. Another name, an unknown name, a secret name that is that is revealed only to believers but not to others. And if so, <laughs> what is that name and why do we not know it if in fact it is a secret name that has been given to those that belong to the Lord? But as I pointed out last week, The way Scripture uses that term name is not quite the same way that we think of it. It stands for the entire person, for the character, the attributes of the one identified by that name. The name is simply a, a handle to get a hold of something bigger. We, as I say, don't generally think of it like that. We think of a name as a name, something that is... Well, it is something that is almost another item. Different things characterize people, and one of them, of course, is his name and other things as well that that you can use to attach to a certain person to know more about him. But to the Jewish people, both in the Old and in the New Testament, the name comprehended everything about that person, all in that one one title, that one name that was given to them. Of course, given to children at birth, it was often a desire that that what this name means will characterize this child. We commit this child to the Lord, and this is what we hope to see accomplished in his life, to see what what we hope to see developed in his life. And oftentimes, as you know, as adults, people in the Bible were given a new name, sometimes a name that was in many respects similar to but slightly different from the one they had before. Abram became Abraham and so forth. But others were entirely different when Jacob, for example, was named Israel. That was a new name. And that indicated new things about him that were not true 
until he reached a certain stage in his life where he had a genuine encounter with God, and it changed him. And then his name was no longer Jacob, deceiver, but Israel, prince with God. His old name was not satisfactory for the change that God had made in him. So you can see how name stands for the whole person. Jacob's original name was very appropriate for the character which he had until he was changed by the power of God. But Israel, prince with God, becomes a whole new dimension. and a whole It gives us a whole different concept of who this person is. And so when Jesus says that he has manifested the Father's name to the men whom the Father gave him out of the world, it means he has revealed the character, the attributes, the person of the Father. In other words, to manifest the Father's name is synonymous with manifesting the Father. I have revealed God to you. I've revealed the nature of God to you. I've revealed the character of God to you. I have revealed the power of God to you. I have revealed the glory of God to you, and on and on it goes. I have revealed the grace of God to you, the mercy of God to you, and so forth. The things that we study in the Bible about God and the things that we need to know about God, Jesus said, I have manifested those to the, those things to the people whom you have given me out of the world. It's no wonder that we know some of these things because, of course, they are in Scripture, but we, we know them in a, in a powerful way because Jesus tells us here that he manifests these things about God to those who have been given to him by the Father. So that's what Jesus does. He manifest the Father's name, which is more than just teaching facts about him, though we must start there. We can't really know much about God apart from knowing what the facts that are revealed about him in Scripture. So it is very helpful to study the attributes of God. But it's more than that. It's a self-disclosure. It's a, re it's a revelation of his glory. And the glory, what does it mean to, to see God's glory? What does it mean for God to, to be glorified? What does it mean for God to reveal his glory? It means his attributes. His glory is, and that, that's only, I guess, a part of what glory means, but it's an important part of what glory means. God is glorious because his attributes are so great. And therefore, to manifest his name to those who are given to him by the Father means to make his people to know and to understand how glorious God the Father is. That's what it means. And so what we realize even in this is that salvation is divinely initiated and divinely accomplished. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. In other words, I have made God known to you. I have enabled you to understand God. I have brought you into a living relationship with God. 
these are are ways of describing salvation. Salvation is divinely initiated. The initiative is with God, not with men. Salvation is divinely affected. There's something which must be revealed by Christ if people are to be saved. It is not something which can be known by unaided human perception. Salvation, according to this text, is divinely targeted. This manifestation by Christ to men is selective. I have manifested your name to whom? To those whom you have given me out of the world. And so there is an activity in regard to a definite group of individuals, not to all individuals without exception, but but to a particular group of individuals to whom Christ makes known the Father. It's kind of an interesting circle here, I suppose. There are people that are claimed by the Father, that are possessed by the Father, who are given to the Son, so that the Son can do what? Reveal the Father to them. Those selected by the Father for this glorious privilege are redeemed by the Son. He dies on the cross for their redemption, but he also reveals the Father to them. He brings them into a spiritual connection and a spiritual relationship and a spiritual understanding with the Father that requires his activity for them to come into that relationship with the Father. And he does that for whom? For those whom the Father chose and gave. So there's, you see the workings of the Trinity here? It's really quite amazing, isn't it? But there's one final description of those of, who are named here, the, the description of what is a true Christian. And let's review it. A Christian is one who first belonged to the Father. A Christian is one who was given by the Father to the Son. A Christian is one to whom the Father's name has been manifested by the Son. And then finally, a Christian is one who has kept God's word. That's what he says. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, here is the first element in this description of a true Christian in which the activity of man is very much involved. The other things are really all outside of men. There are things that are done to men and women, but not something that they partake in or participate in until, well, until it's done. And then there's, there are results that flow out of that. Who is, what is a Christian? One who first belonged to the Father. What do we have to do with that? They first belong to him because we first, we who believe in Christ, first belong to him because he claimed us for himself before the world was ever created. Something, of course, that only God could do based upon his omniscience knowing all things 
that there is to know. And so knowing who would be born, who he would bring into the world, who he would choose to become his children, he claims them as his own. A Christian is one who first belonged to the Father. We don't have anything to do with that. A Christian, secondly, is one who has been given to the Father by the Son. Well, what do we have to do with that? This is a matter between the Father and the Son. The Father takes those whom he has chosen from eternity past, and he gives them to his Son. And that all takes place outside of us. In fact, in this case, all, it all takes place before we even were born. This was all settled long before we ever came along. But then there's a third thing. A Christian is one to whom the Father's name has been manifested by the Son. And now this takes place in time. It takes place in the life of each believer after he has been born, after he has lived, after he has come under the sound of the gospel. There is this work by the Son, and it's actually a work that the Son uh, has delegated to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but here it's characterized as being something the Son does because he says, I have manifested, I have made known your name, I have made known the reality of who you are in a special sense in which you are not known except to those who fit this category, those who first belonged to the Father and secondly were given to the Son, and those whom you gave to me, I have manifested your name, your character, your your glory to in a very special way. And again, what do we have to do with that? This is something that God does within us. God does for us. God does to us so that we can know God and so that we do know God, not just can, but we, we can and do. It's all all together here, I have manifested your name to those. But then finally, this part comes, and here we are involved very much, and they have kept your word. Don't you see that that is a result of the others? Just look, think again of how this is worded. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. This is something that Jesus has done, and he reports to the Father in prayer that he's done it. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, a declaration of the Father to the Son in prayer. It's almost like a reminder, but it's here. They were yours. You gave them to me. Again, a reminder that Jesus is saying, I have been faithful I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. Remember, Father, as if God had, could, could forget anything, but, but it's, a, it's a matter of speaking. These ones who, you, they, they were yours, you chose them. And number two, you gave them to me. You gave them to me as a responsibility that I should take, take on the responsibility to redeem them to provide atonement for them and to bring that, that atoning work into effect in the lives of each of these ones. And so I have manifested your name to them, and that, in a sense, is saying I have brought to completion the work of salvation 
in the lives of these, all the things that are necessary to bring that apart. I bring that about. I've done it. Now, he said this before he'd actually died on the cross, but he speaks in this prayer, in fact, throughout the upper room discourse, as if this were already an accomplished fact. I have, in fact, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. He said that previously, remember, in the opening. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Though he has not yet gone to the cross, but it is imminent and so certain that he speaks of it in terms of that which is already done. I've done that, and here's the final part. I've, I've, done, I, I've laid the foundation. I've done what was necessary so that men can be saved, so that sinful men can be reconciled to a holy God, but they have to come to you. They have to be joined to you. They have to know you. They have to believe in you. So, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That, too, is an announcement. It's an observation. It's a fact. It's not they are trying to keep your word. I hope they will be faithful to keep your word. I'm confident that now they have the ability to keep your word, if they will but do it. Eh, That isn't the language here. And, as a result of these other things, and they have kept your word. Everyone who belonged to you, everyone that you gave to me, everyone that I have manifested your name to, it can be said of all of them that they have kept your word. And here I say is the first item in this description of a Christian in which man's activity is in view. Here is an activity required of men. Here is an required exercise of faith, but it is a certain one too. It's not, it's, it's, though it's required of us, it's our responsibility to keep his word. Nevertheless, it's not possible for a true Christian not to do that. Everyone who first belonged to the Father, everyone who was given to the Son, I have everyone to, to whom I have manifested your name has kept your word. I've done all of these things, and as a result of this, they have kept your word. So what does it mean to keep God's word? In a sense, I think it would be accurate to say this is similar to, if not identical, with believe. They have believed in your word. And if that is what we're talking about, then it is initial faith. Does this help us to understand the nature of true saving faith? Yes, it is a faith that lays hold on the word of God and makes it one's own and treasures it and keeps it. They have kept your word. The Greek word for kept contains an element of guard. They have guarded your word. Why? 
<laughs> because it's so valuable. It needs to be kept. It needs to be treasured. It needs to be guarded. That's what Christians do. They keep God's Word. His words, plural, and comprehensively in their totality, His Word, singular, the Bible, the Word of God, the Word that has been revealed to men and has been written down to be preserved and to be handed down from generation to generation that becomes the treasure of, of believers, the, the thing we treasure most above everything else. You say, well, you, you're, you're a, an idolater. You're a, I've heard people say things like this. You're guilty of worshiping the Bible rather than Jesus Christ. You, you put so much value upon the Word. Is it really possible to completely separate these two when the Bible itself has given to Jesus the name Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, the written Word and the living Word are so intertwined together that to love one is to love the other, to know one is to know the other, to keep one is to keep the other, to worship one is to worship the other. I don't think we can really be guilty of, of an idolatrous attachment to the Word unless what we mean is a superstitious attachment to it. I, I bow down to this book on the shelf, and I worship the Bible, but I don't open it, I don't read it, I don't apply it. No, that's not keeping the Word, is it? To keep His Word means to receive His Word. To keep God's Word is to believe it, to receive it, and to apply it to our lives. We we are people of the book. We are people of the Word. The Word is our life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The, the Word of God is what keeps us alive spiritually. We can't stay alive physically without physical food. We can't stay alive spiritually without spiritual food. You say, well, is it possible for a Christian to starve out his spiritual life? No. Well, you just said... If he doesn't have an adequate intake of the word, he will, he'll, he'll die just like an inadequate intake of physical food will cause someone to lose their physical life. Well, yes, that is true. But the other truth is that, that God's work guarantees that we will keep his word. We, we may not keep it as, as um, enthusiastically and as consistently as we ought to. In fact, none of us will will keep it as, as to the full extent that we should. But no true Christian is going to be without it either. You can't neglect it if you're a true Christian. Totally neglect it. It's just not possible. And so they have kept your word. They didn't believe it selectively. They accepted all of it as your word. They did not keep it perfectly because no man does, but Nevertheless, Christ says they have kept your word. He speaks graciously, doesn't he? They keep it perseveringly. Their, their faith does not fail. It does not disappear. It does not depart. It grows. We grow in grace and knowledge of, our, of the word of God. And the emphasis is on the word. And so we need to emphasize the word strongly. 
every one of us in our own lives, our own schedules, our own practices, our own devotion to the Word, the Bible, the Word of God. Churches need to emphasize the Word of God. Churches, all of them, ought to be a Bible-centered church. It's a shame that we would even speak in terms of, this church is a Word-centered church, this other one is not. Well, what kind of a church should there be, what kind of true church could there be that is not a Word-centered church when we see the importance of the Word? God's people keep His Word. If we are going to be a church of God's true people, then we are going to make the Word central. And if we don't, there's something terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for joining me. Please come back next week at the same time. Until then, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you His eternal peace. Amen.